You are listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast, a place to grow, learn, and be inspired as you discover God's purpose for your life. Here's your host, the pastor you've always wanted without the church, Dr. Kumar Dixit. Hey, welcome back to another episode. I am so glad that you could join me. And, you know, I got to tell you something. I got to admit a little secret. And that is, you know, I've been a pastor for over 25 years. And would you believe it if I told you that even I have doubts about my own faith? Um, not only doubts, sometimes I get angry at the stuff that I, I read in the Bible. You know, in the last 25 years, I've probably been a Christian, not a Christian, been an atheist, been an agnostic, but I get paid to be a pastor. And so I try really hard to believe in what I, what I, what I say. A few months ago, I came across a book that I, I just really caught my attention, especially the, the title is called Conversations with My Inner Atheists. And I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And then the tagline uh, subtitles, a Christian apologist explores questions that keep people up at night. So read the book. I loved it. It was fun to read. And a lot of theological books are not fun to read. So this was actually kind of a fun read. The author, Randall Rouser. Welcome, Randall. It's great to be with you, Kumar. It's, um, glad to hear. I love writing fun books. So it, it was it was a lot of fun. Before I, I get started, let me just let everyone know that you're a professor of historical theology at Taylor Seminary in Edmonton, Alberta. Um, one of the coldest places I've ever been is Edmonton, Alberta. I didn't realize that for months, you never actually drive on the street. You're actually driving on just ice. Wow. That sounds pretty scary. You can put it like that. <laughs> We've actually had a have had a really sort of manic depressive winter. So this year, it's the only place that I actually put those things underneath your boots that has like claws, so you won't like <laughs> like trip and fall and slip. Well, a few years ago, because I'm I'm not originally from Alberta, I'm from British Columbia, which is a little more temperate. And so one way for me to kind of reframe the winters is by comparing Edmonton to uh, place a place like Yakutsk in Siberia. Yakutsk, <laughs> Yakutsk compared to Edmonton is like Edmonton compared to Los Angeles in winter, quite literally. That's okay. how much colder it is in that part of Siberia. And so I check their forecast and it makes me feel better about mine. Oh, uh, yeah, that's that's a great idea. <laughs> that's great. So this book is it's called Conversations with Your Inner Atheist. And what I love is that it's kind of just a back and forth dialogue between you and your inner self. In the book, it's you speaking, but then the inner self is a Maya. A Maya is the atheist that's kind of the protagonist that's really, or I should say the antagonist. It depends on, on really what, what <laughs> viewpoint you're taking, but she's kind of giving you a little bit of a kickback. It's funny to read because it's you saying it all. It's just under the name of, of Maya. What I ended up feeling, Randall, is that I kind of related to Maya, like, more than I did with, with your answers, you know, I mean, it was really, really well thought through. What kind of feedback have you gotten on this book? I, well, positive. I, I haven't gotten a lot of negative, but I do think that generally people are self-selecting, right? So the people who are sure. interested in thinking through and not necessarily having every hard question tied up in a neat bow are probably just not going to pick this book up in the first place. Um, I did have one person give a very negative review of it because they called me a fundamentalist. Uh, which I think is kind of 
would catch me off guard because yeah, for most yeah. people, I am definitely not a fundamentalist. But it does kind of remind us how those terms often have relative uses, right? One person's fundamentalist is the next person's liberal. Yeah, yeah, very, very much so. So just to, um, for my my one listener that I have on on my podcast, a couple um, interesting chapter titles that you have is, uh, was Jesus a racist? Um, wouldn't a heaven that went on forever eventually become hell? I want to talk to you about that in a little bit. Why can't gay people just marry? How do you make sense of the Trinity? And it just, you know, just all the stuff that I've been wondering and thinking about myself, you ask and you, you know, really give a good explanation to, to, to much of it. Here's my question, especially because you call yourself an apologist. So I'm like, oh, perfect. I've been wanting to like, you know, nail somebody for like years, you know, and, and get underneath them. And Ravi Zechariah is dead. So I, I, it's a, here you are. Does God know what he's doing? Just hear me out for a brief moment, because I feel like, like right now I'm rereading the Bible um, this year. And as I'm rereading the Old Testament, I'm like getting angry, Randall, because I'm like, okay, dude, you made the earth. You may have made it a little, maybe too quick, like in six days, because <laughs> you did it in a rush or something. And you didn't, you didn't have a plan afterwards, because as I read, especially the Old Testament, I mean, even starting with Genesis 6, 6, where it says, um, God looked at the humans and he grieved that he had made them. Okay. So all of a sudden he like is having second thoughts. Then he has the flood. He destroys the whole earth. Didn't God not know that wasn't going to resolve sin by like putting your faith in like one man and his family. And as you're looking throughout scripture, I keep finding these places where God like just doesn't seem like he has a plan. He's like, he he chooses Abraham, then he gets frustrated with Abraham. And he's like, I'm going to kill Abraham. And luckily, Sarah, like, saves him and, and God decides to keep him alive. He chooses Moses. And then there's a verse for Moses. He's like, I'm just gonna kill Moses, you know, and, mm. you know, so I'm like, does this guy have a plan? Does he know what's going on? Or is he kind of like winging it? Let me say a couple of things. Uh, great question. And you've teed it up very nicely. Um, you're not going to make my work easy for me, which I appreciate. Uh, so the first thing I would say, I just actually had an interaction with an atheist fellow on Twitter who assumed that to be a Christian is to be committed to perfect being theism. Now, without getting into too much of technical detail, perfect being theism is just the idea that God is a maximally perfect being, kind of the Anselmian idea, Anselm describing God as that being then which none greater could be conceived. And I respond to this guy by saying, actually, Christians have never agreed precisely on something like that. There have always been a range of theologies, of ways of thinking about God. And he pushed back. He said, well, what are you talking about? And I just gave some examples. So, for example, open theism, well-known example. Now, open theists, many of them would want to say that they, they are something like a perfect being theist, perhaps. But they have a view that God does not know the future perfectly. And so God can quite literally have regrets. And hmm. God can look and say, man, this didn't turn out the way I had anticipated based upon the best presently available information. I wish I'd done it another way. Hindsight's twenty twenty, yeah. And for a lot of people, that's like, hey, that's crazy. But yeah, there are people that take that view and they have, I think, reasoned, thoughtful grounds for doing so. There's the people like process theists who believe that God exists with creation, but is not omnipotent over creation. And that God has this kind of 
act in the world through a sort of wooing, trying to draw out his favorite outcomes rather than kind of in a quote unquote top down way, just determining what's going to happen. And that's another view represented. And then there are just what often people from a biblical theological perspective who just reject the whole sort of assumptions that they find are very sort of Greek or foreign assumptions about divine perfection being mm-hmm. imported into the text. And they're much more willing to talk about the humanity of God or the imperfections of God as depicted in scripture. So the first thing I would say is the Christian tradition allows for a range of views on understanding the divine nature. The second thing I would just say with respect to the biblical text, uh, this actually ties into a book I published last year called Jesus Loves Canaanites, where I take on something that makes me really angry, which is how God is depicted as interacting with some of the outgroups in Israel or relative to Israel, like the Canaanites, wipe mm-hmm. them out, eradicate them, which I think equates when I go through this in some detail to what we would today call genocide. And one of the points I make in that book uh, very simply is that the Christian tradition is not committed to reading and does not commit you to reading the Deuteronomic history or like the big history of Israel in the Bible, including a lot of the things you just referenced from Noah, Abraham, Moses, and so on. It doesn't commit you to reading those as historical past events. Christianity is at its heart, the Apostles' Creed, I would say, uh, which centers on the the incarnate life, death, and then resurrection of Jesus initiating God's kingdom. And the further that you get out from that, the more that there is, I think, room for that kind of questioning and for sort of chastened opinions so that we don't have to think that we have to read Leviticus or you know Joshua as newspaper reports of past events. There's a lot more room to how we interpret and appropriate them. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think, you know, part, part of the problem, and, you know, I grew up in fundamental Christianity myself. So one of the problems with fundamentalism is that you have to do everything at all costs to prove that you're right at all times. And what that does is it never gives you an opportunity to really admit error or admit uh, that you may not know everything as well. You know, so, you know, I think one of the one of the challenges is for Christians, modern Christians, is the idea that, you know, when we're learning to read the Bible, just as you said, it's not a literal reporting of what happened. Um, so when you're reading a narrative, for example, there's art involved, there's, there's, there's poetry, there's all sorts of structures that how things are, are written in scripture that we have to take into, into account and think of lamentations as I'm, I'm, as I'm talking to you about this, you know, just, just the idea that there's a lot of artistry that's involved with it. And it's not necessarily just a CNN recap of what happened during the early times. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, very much. As I was raised, I would say broadly fundamentalical or fundamentalist as well. And we had this very flat view of the Bible as read literal where possible, which is this, I think, kind of really indefensible hermeneutical principle or interpretive principle. Because in fact, you have to read a text with accord to the type of literary genre it is, its socio-historical context and so on. But for a lot of people, that's obviously difficult to do. And so it's easy to default to a simple view. I like to describe the Bible in analogy to a textbook. So when I was doing my an English literature degree close to 30 years ago, we had the Norton Anthology of American Literature, collection mm-hmm. of all of these different types of writing that tell the story of the American experience. And nobody would think of reading that textbook as all literal descriptions of past events. I mean, there's poetry in there, there's letters, uh, yeah. there's legal documents and so on. The Bible is the same way. And so you can't have a one size fits all approach. 
you know, with my postmodern kind of influence, I, I'm kind of open to polytheism. And just for you to know this, I teach world religions on university level. So I have a kind of a different viewpoint on, on things. And, and so as I'm looking at you, if you're on YouTube right now, you're able to see that behind Randall is a picture of Jesus on the cross, um, the crucifixion. And many Christians believe that that is the one and only way to God. Um, is that atoning sacrifice that Jesus had. You know, you, you raise early up on in the book, you know, the idea of the Trinity. The concept of the Trinity is very, very new in modern society. I mean, it, it's not something that first, second, third, fourth, early Christians were aware of. I mean, it's, it's really something that, that it's only, only come in our, in our modern time. So my idea is that, you know, just as if there's a three-face panel of God, is there multiple panels of God, meaning that, you know, God came into the Judeo-Christian world to share his love for humanity, but in the same way, God has also come into the Native American world, through the Hindu world, um, through the Sikh world, to demonstrate his love for humanity as well. One uh, way to think about this, I, I think categories are very important. So one thing I would want to distinguish is between pluralism and, and inclusivism. And so a pluralist position would be a position like John Hick famously took, or Paul Knitter, I would say. And so this is a view that says that Christianity works great for Christians and relative to that community, that's their understanding of what the ultimate is or the real or the divine. Other communities have their understandings, and those are equally true relative to those communities. And all of these communities, their understanding of doctrine, really the function probably is to foment or bring about something like right living in accord with the ultimate. And okay. so they, they can all be true simultaneously. And I would call that a sort of pluralist model. And that's not a model that I would accept. Uh, I believe in a sense of in exclusivism in the sense that Christianity is God's fullest revelation for all humanity. Having said that, this is where inclusivism becomes important because inclusivism is the idea that says, but well, we don't just speak definitively that God's the locus of God's revelation is only limited to Christianity. In okay. fact, God can be found. All truth is God's truth. And you can find all sorts of truth in other religious traditions. Uh, it's been years, but I've been in a secret and I've experienced the hospitality there and their reverence for their scripture and their community and things like that, that is truth that is being embodied in that community, which I've been challenged by. Mm -hmm. And so you can find truth in all sorts of places. And I think you can still say that and also say that you, I believe that Jesus is the unique incarnation of God. And I do believe the Trinity most accurately describes the divine nature in certain respect. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Here's my driving question. I'm going to try to ask the question without sounding like I'm bitter, but I, I may not be able to, to do that. When I, when I explain the Ten Commandments and explain a lot of the Levitical laws, the way that I explain it is, look, the Jews were in captive and bondage for 400 years. They were slaves. They didn't have time to think, read, write. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have ideas of, of moral or, or ethical uh, decision making because all they were doing was like making bricks all day long and being beaten and, and trying to survive. So God pulls them out after 400 years and he's like about two months into the desert. He's like, all right, let me teach you guys how to live like 
regular human beings? How about like, you don't kill each other? How about you don't steal? How about you, you know, remember that I'm your, your God and he gives them this, these lists. And then in, in, in Leviticus, he comes down to like, really, really, you know, micro stuff, like don't mix your, your threads, you know, your clothing threads together, you know, grow, grow out your, your, your sideburns or whatever. He's giving them very specific ideas on how to live now that they're no longer slaves. And for me, I feel like that is a really great opportunity for God to set some rules in place. As I read it, I, I can't remember, I think maybe like Leviticus 19, he talks about the idea of not ha- having sex with one of your father's wives, plural. So for years, the way that theologians would, would contextualize this is to say, well, God is just being a God of the people of that time, that culture, their traditions. And so he, he's not really getting in the way of it. When I look at the Old Testament story, he had a really great chance to like hit the reset button. But instead, he's giving like rules about like not mixing your threads together, but then he's also not talking against, you know, numerous wives and et cetera. So I think one thing that can be helpful maybe is, is to say, to take a look at, well, what, how did these texts come to us? And I think that this Deuteronomic canon that we're talking about right now, including Leviticus, that it was likely formed in probably the time of the Josianic reforms around the 620s into the mid 550s BCE. So right around the time that Israel was overrun by these foreign colonial invaders, the Babylonians. And all this stuff that, that we're reading about events that ostensibly happened 700, 800, 900, 1,000 years ago and more pre- before that. So it, it's all based upon these writings that were really gathered together by some Deuteronomic editor, one or more at that time. And again, it's about events that happened maybe 1,000 years before, 800 years before. And so what it is, it's like gathering oral traditions and earlier writings and gathering them into this cohesive whole that would become the the capsule heart of the Hebrew scriptures, right at the time when they're about to lose their identity as people and be overrun by a foreign invading force. And so what I think with that in mind, that we have to take with a significant degree of caution, again, simple assumptions about reading those those as sort of newspaper accounts of past events, that God actually spoke in this way and this event actually happened like this. Because if we just apply that as a consistent model, let's say that in our day, right, we, we have, let's say from the early 20th century, a writing which has some fragments it's based upon in oral traditions, but it's describing events that happened in 12 100 AD in, in the in the high mm-hmm. Middle Ages, we'd be pretty skeptical that we had just sort of a newspaper event account of those events 800 years earlier. And we have to have that same sort of caution here. With that in mind, then I say, well, then how can I understand what's going on in Leviticus set against the backdrop of the 7th and 6th centuries BC when it was likely written for this people, the Israelites? And when you talk about things like mixing fabrics, I think the overall message that they're getting is you need to be different. You need to be distinct from the world around you. And you're about to be overrun by a foreign invading force, but maintain your distinctiveness as God's people. And so that's part of the the big message I get there. And I don't get lost in the details where I think that there's a lot of degree of skepticism about what we can know historically. I feel like in some ways, what you just said is kind of hinting what I've read Bart Ehrman say quite a bit. And and that is, 
you know, you have to understand that that this isn't literal history and it's being written so many years later and it's kind of following the, the culture of the time. So it may not necessarily even be Judaism that's being reflected, but it's really like maybe a neighboring culture around them that's that's also kind of being influenced um, during their time. Is that what you're saying? I mean, there's undeniable that you have humanity in the text. Well, one way to think about the text, the Bible, is in analogy to Jesus. So when we say that Jesus is fully incarnate, he's fully God and fully human. So scripture is fully God and fully human. But what does that mean? Uh, it undeniably is the result of socio-historical human processes and often reflects the limited and error perspectives of those human beings. But qua divinity, with respect to divine purpose, I think God is doing all sorts of things by using and appropriating those human perspectives within his canon of scripture. But what I don't think that the Bible is, is simply, thus saith the Lord, like God just simply dictating to people. I think those kinds of models that are so popular among conservative Christians, frankly, they end up losing much of the humanity of the text. And then you end up doing backflips trying to deny what you're reading, yeah. uh, rather than giving yourself the moral space to react in the way that you've described, which actually I think is intrinsic to what scripture is. It's an invitation to wrestle with God. That's the very name of the meaning of Israel is to wrestle with God. Scripture invites us into the conversation and to wrestle with what our reading as you've described that you do. You're listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast with Dr. Kumar Dixit. If you found this podcast helpful to your spiritual journey, please make sure you give us a five-star rating and subscribe to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Now let's get back to the conversation with Kumar. Annihilation. <laughs> I read a couple of those chapters several times just to kind of get a better idea of what you're talking about. And as I kept reading it, I, I kept thinking about the idea that, yeah, why would God raise somebody from the dead just to kill them again? Because they weren't judged properly. Like they died out of a disease, but now they hear the decision, you know, the final decision of what God is. So it seems like a very unjust idea. How do you spin it in such a way that it, it makes sense that God would raise the righteous and unrighteous dead and then doom them back to death? So the background is a few passages of scripture, such as Daniel 12, 2, that talk about a general resurrection to judgment uh, and to life, depending on you know, which category you're in. And Jesus refers to that as well in John chapter 5, 28 and 29 about this future general resurrection. It seems to be part of traditional Christian theology, but you have to interpret it. And so there are different views. So the, the one view that I do quite strongly reject would be the eternal conscious torment view, which is to say that people are resurrected to eternal suffering of punishment if they're outside of God's kingdom. The view that I do camp on is the annihilationist or conditional mortality view, which says God resurrects people to a judgment that results in the cessation of their existence. And yeah, that is something that I chafe against to some degree, because it's like, why not just leave people dead if, if they're going to be outside of God's kingdom? Why does he go about the trouble of resurrecting them again, only to destroy them again? I guess I'll say two things. So the first thing would be from within that model, I still think you can give a good account for justice being done and being seen to be done. So that we do this in our own jurisprudential uh, context today in law. So let's say that a, that a, a man, he commits a, a crime where he sets fire to an orphanage and burns it down and all the children die. It's a heinous crime. In the midst of it, he is critically wounded in the fire himself. 
One response would be, well, then just let him die. Another response would be, no, uh, restore him to health and then try him, have a trial for him. And then if the result is capital punishment, so be it. But that's what justice looks like. It's not that he die as a byproduct of his sinful evil actions. It's that he die as a result of justice being visited upon him. And so then that would be a similar model is that God resurrects people for justice. Now, there are going to be people that are going to say that's still not a satisfactory account, to which I say there's also a universalist tradition within Christianity that says the resurrection is to a judgment which is ultimately restorative. So in fact, it's not punitive. It's not that God's going to destroy people, but rather that he'll bring them to suffer to the point of coming to recognize their own sinful weakness, alienating them against others, and to be reconciled to those others. And so I don't think that that a concern about this should be a barrier to Christianity, because I think you have all these options available. So everything in me, but my conservative fundamental background and childhood prevents me from being a universalist, even though I want to be <laughs> in, in, in every possible you know, way. There's a story in, in Luke 14, where Jesus tells a story of there's a party that's going to happen, and he tells us, the master tells the servants to go out, and not enough people show up, and there's way too much food. And so the master says, like, very vehemently, go out there to the highways and byways and go get anybody. And the New Living Translation says, compel. And as I was looking at that Greek word, it, it's, it's really like to forcibly, like almost like strong arm people to come in and, and, and come to the party. That's how passionate God is um, that he wants people to be on the saving side of things. When I think about God as kingdom and the grace, I look at that as like, God's going to pretty much let anyone in heaven who wants to be in heaven. It's not like it's like, oh, you're in or you're out. It's, oh, do you want to do this? Well, let's do this, you know, because I, I, I want you. And if you choose not to do it, then then that's fine. So what do you think about my little like messed up theology as I'm kind of working that out? I think the messed up theology would be uh, the idea that God kind of makes salvation capriciously as a limited time offer. And so that people can miss it by making a mistake. I like to, to give an example. So let's say that, that you buy a car or um, and you have a car and then you have a, have a warranty on it, but they don't tell you that the warranty expires after 30 days or something. And so on the 31st day, you come in and you want to get your car service because it just broke down. And then the service guy says, uh, well, actually, your warranty has just expired it was 30 days, but you didn't tell me that. It doesn't say that anywhere. Sorry, but yeah. that's the way it is. And people think about God is like that. It's like, oh, he's going to give you these 60 or 70 years or what have you to repent. And if you miss that, a second after you're dead, you're going to cry out for it. And God's going to say, no, you missed mm -hmm. your chance. Well, some of the language Jesus uses in Matthew in particular is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mm. And and the, the term for the, the Greek word for gnashing, it refers to anger and rebellion. It's like a dog gnashing its teeth that wants to rip apart someone who's walking past or something like that. Mm -hmm. The image, in other words, is that Jesus is warning about people who alienate themselves from God to such a degree that they are cursing God and they want nothing to do with him. That's very different than, Lord, please, I, I want to believe. Give me another chance. No, you missed your chance. It's not like that. Yeah. So, so the, the whole thing about universalism is, can God break through to those people? who are gnashing their teeth at him. But what is nef never, I think, on the table is, 
does God just make salvation a limited time offer because he's just kind of mean and less loving than we are? Mm, that's beautiful. You're listening to the Concierge Minister podcast with Dr. Kumar Dixit. In the beginning of your book, Maya asks whether or not you can really be honest because you work at a university. And so there's, you know, intellectual freedom. And I thought about that as I was reading your book. So I was like, at some level, you're trying to be honest, but you also get paid and don't want to lose your job over a book that someone's going to be upset about. So as I read your book, I felt like one of the areas that you were, you were pretty weak on was the whole issue of LGBTQ. I felt like you were dancing around it, partly because maybe you work at a you know, conservative you know, university. But what I feel like is that there's like six or seven, what we call clobber verses in the Bible, and that we base all of our ideas and prejudice towards this concept, towards these people. When I look at that, I mean, there's been quite a bit of recent scholarly work that is taking in, you know, some of those pericopes that we look at in scripture and really take to task um, how we're really reading it. Do you feel as if, you know, just as we've said that the Bible is not a prescription, do you feel as if there's a, there's a quite a bit of latitude that we need to be able to look at some of these scriptures as it relates to this? Maybe I'll say three things. So the first thing is generally in terms of seminaries or Christian schools, sort of having a requirement for their employees. I, I think the, the point I try to make in the book is, is that every community has some expectations. Certainly every educational community does. Uh, I have friends who teach in public universities who have lost their jobs because students accuse them of having microaggressions, but couldn't provide any substantive evidence for that or what that even looks like. And so every school has, has some kind of expectation. Some are written and some are unstated. And some of them are good. If you're a Holocaust denier and you want to get a job teaching at the local history department, not going to happen. I mean, even if you think, yeah, but look at what I've, I've amassed, this great new article as well, researched with lots of footnotes. They're not yeah. even going to read it. You're just off the table. And so some of those are, are good. And, and some of those screening mechanisms maybe are not and can be threats of academic freedom, but we all have that. The second thing I would say is my pers myself personally, I'm probably more adept at expressing myself in, in a way that can secure myself from, from challenge than some people are. So I can kind of see the objections a little ways down the road. And I'll just give you one specific example, and then I'll turn to LGBT for the last point. And so th this example was I had somebody who wanted to get me fired. And I've had this a few times over the years. And this person was saying that I, because I've, I describe it in inclusivist theology, that I, I'm open to and hopeful that God will save people across the spectrum, not just in a confessing Christian tradition. And this person believed that I was undermining or inconsistent with our statement of belief of the seminary and the denomination. And I asked him like this. I said, okay, you have a 12-year-old girl in Auschwitz, Jewish girl. She rejects Christianity and dies in Auschwitz. The Christianity she rejected is the Christianity of the Third Reich. Are you saying that to teach in this university and be part of this denomination, I have to believe she's in hell? He didn't want to respond to that question. That's a way of reframing and putting your interrogator on the defensive. And I think that we, if you want to get into these kinds of questions and without losing your job, you've got to be good at doing that. And I think I'm pretty good at that. Now to, to LGBT, I'll just say I'm writing a book on that topic right now. So I'm definitely myself wrestling through those issues. 
one of the reasons this is such a hot topic issue is because it's given out, been given outsized importance. I, I like to point out, for example, if pacifists and just war theorists can disagree as to whether you can kill other people in God's name and yet be part of the same Christian church, then I don't understand why you can't have people who can disagree about the interpretation of Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6, 8, and 9, and yet be part of the same community. And, and one way that I like to kind of make people from the sort of traditional camp squirm a little bit is by pointing out that Jesus, when he talks about divorce in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, he doesn't give exceptions except for porneia. That's the one, marital and faithfulness. And so then I say, okay, if you have people divorced because the guy was threatening to kill his wife and was beating her, uh, it's not porneia, not yeah. the way I understand the Greek. Now, if she remarries, is, is she in adultery? Let's say she marries a wonderful Christian man and they raise a family. Has she been living in adultery for the last 30 years because the second marriage was illegitimate because she divorced the first guy for a reason other than porneia? It, it's hard to find. I do find them, but it's hard to find people that are willing to say she's in adultery. I think most people recognize okay, something more is going on here. If you're going to have yeah. that, that kind of flexibility with respect to divorce, maybe you should be considering how people can disagree with you when it comes to LGBT. Hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading your, your book on that. A couple softball questions. What are you reading for fun these days? Well, actually, I'm, I'm reading for fun books on that topic because I'm, I'm writing on it. And so I don't consider, I mean, research is fun for me. So it's, it's, uh, it's both in. And then I'm in a book club at my church. I lead a book club at my church. And so we've been reading Beth Allison Barr's book that came out last year on gender issues, which is a great book and been a little controversial for some, uh, some complementarians, I should say. And uh, we're really going to be reading Dixon's book, Bullies and Saints, which is a history of the church and kind of takes on the kind of ugly side of it. When I teach history, I just love to highlight that for students so that we're not getting the airbrushed saints approach to history. Yeah. So that's that's kind of what I'm reading for fun. Uh, any any Netflix uh, binges? Uh, Netflix, we just finished All Our Friends Are Dead, which is a Korean zombie film mm -hmm. series, a 12 mm -hmm. episode I don't reckon, recommend it for the for the faint of heart, but if you like zombie films and the sociopolitical issues that they explore and things like class and society, and then it's it's a very good series. Very cool. Randall, I feel like I kind of started really deconstructing my faith when I started doing my own research on how the Bible was put together and how poorly it was put together as far as just, you know, who put it together, what got into the Bible. There's no original autographs, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So, and, and when I teach Christian theology, you know, one of the things I really try to make sure I help students understand is the, is the fact that you could lose your faith if you really dig a little bit deeper. You know, as a professor who's looking at these kinds of controversial and deep ideas, how is it that you're able to remain a Christian? Because I know a lot of theological professors who are atheists, but you're involved in your church. You, you, you have a picture of Jesus dying on the cross behind you. So, you know, how do you stay faithful when, when you know so much that may not be true? Well, I, th I think that, uh, that the, the kind of struggles that you're describing are born of assumptions. So, for example, if a person is concerned that there are no autographs, it's because they thought there should be autographs, which <laughs> kind of raises the question, why do we think there should be autographs, right? That's it's sort of yeah. the, the background assumption. 
for me, so when I when I find things that are like problematic in the Bible, uh, it doesn't create some existential problem. What I want to say, and one of the things I come from as a literary background, a degree in English literature, is to recognize that there can be errors in a text or problems in a text which were actually intentionally put there by the author. So um, I also, this can be the case in film, and I, I give the example of my favorite film, which is The Shining, directed by Stanley Kubrick. One of the interesting things about The Shining, which I talk about in, in Jesus Loves Canaanites, this other book, is that there are a lot of what would traditionally be called continuity errors in the film. So for example, there is a scene, in famous scene where Wendy, the wife, is hiding in a washroom, a bathroom, and then her husband, Jack, has gone crazy, and he's trying to get at her with an axe, and he's trying to open the door with the axe, and he, he knocks out one panel of the door, and in the next scene, it shows two panels of the door missing, but there was no moment when he axed the second panel. With a lesser filmmaker, what you would say is that is an example of a continuity error, and it's poor filmmaking. The Shining has a lot of examples like that. But when it comes to Kubrick, nobody thinks, at least I think people don't correctly think that those are actually continuity errors, because Kubrick was a meticulous filmmaker. And when there are ostensible continuity errors in the film, we say what is actually going on is he's doing something and he's making a point. And the challenge for us is to figure out why this got discontinuity. For example, one of the themes I think in, in the film is that the hotel itself is a living being interacting with the environment of those within it. And so when you get things that like the order of the carpet changes in different scenes, the pattern switches, it's not a mistake. What it's doing is Kubrick is telling us something about the hotel. So mm -hmm. things like that, you begin to say, what is the, the director doing? So my confidence in Kubrick as a filmmaker is not shaken by ostensible errors in The Shining. What it does is it prompts me to explore what he's doing. And for me, it's the same thing with scripture. When I believe scripture is written by God, in a sense, as the primary author, then when I find these errors, whether they're moral or historical or something else, it simply prompts me to interact further with the text in new ways. That's beautiful. That's really, really great analogy. Thank you. Hey, man, I could talk to you all day. I'm just going to have to read another couple more of your books and bring you back on to, onto the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Awesome. It's been great. Thanks for having me, Kumar.